Hi, I'm Amanda Lisi. Welcome to episode 29 of Essential Conversations. You're about to hear my conversation with folk singer, songwriter, producer, and activist Ani DeFranco. We recorded this interview during the COVID shutdown a couple of months before the 2020 presidential election and right after she released the song Do or Die, reminding us about the power of our vote. For the first time in decades, she shaved her head for the song's video, and also for the first time in decades, I interviewed her, and she was as open and gracious as ever. On those early days, did you feel lonely or alone, or were you just so steadfast in what you knew you wanted to do that that kind of didn't matter if anybody was there necessarily supporting you in a big way like that? I think I was born lonely. I think I was, I think I came out of my house as a young pup, lonely and searching for connection. And it mattered so much. It was everything. Yeah, I felt very alone. And the connections that I made through my guitar, through my songs, were my first anchor, you know, to the earth, to myself. I think I didn't need much, I feel like, you know, like... I could drive for thousands of miles and be condescended to and cast aside and ignored by everybody. And if just one, usually chick, you know, if just one person turned around and listened to what I was playing and re and came and talked to me and I made a connection, I would go for another thousand miles, you know? Like my songs were just me reaching out. I was just reaching out, seeing if I could touch anyone, <laughs> you know, and pull them closer to me. Yeah, totally. That's what it was all about. You know, you started that way, but eventually you had and still have this incredible following of people who you touch and connect. Um, did it ever start to feel overwhelming? Like, it's, it's interesting how people have to kind of be ready for success and if you don't see it coming, you're not necessarily prepared for it. Were you ready when a lot of people started saying, oh, we're going to write stories about her. Oh, we're going to put her on TV. Oh, we want to sign her to a major label. Like, that's a lot to come at somebody who has been driving across the country by themselves and performing alone. Uh, what were you, were you ready for all of that when it came? Well... I got to say, I am an advocate for the slow, steady build, you know, the overnight success. Wow. I, I you know, I, who could be ready for that? And even the sort of 10 years, I wrote my first song at 14 and by 18 or less, really, actually, much less. I was playing in bars and, you know, do it, just starting it, doing my thing. Um, this whole, like, life in music. Um so, you know, it was probably a good 10 years of slowly building that life before any, you know, before that sort of critical mass of attention and all those things that you're talking about. And still, no, 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 I was not ready. It got overwhelming. It got, it definitely got overwhelming for a while when, I mean, I was just thinking about like, you probably remember back in the day because you were there supporting me. I would, I would, I was playing in bars and there was a mosh pit, you know, and most of the mosh pit were young women, you know, but I would jump off stage. I would put down my guitar and jump off stage. Andy would be doing a drum solo 
and you know, the magic finger carpet ride, crowd surfing on the crowd. And so that's like, that was the first 10 years, right? Sort of metaphorically speaking. And then at some point I jump off stage and it's an overwhelming amount of hands and they all grab me. And it was, it went from the most elated feeling to the most terrifying, constricting feeling in an instant, kind of, you know? I receded for a while where, you know, these people that I had been grasping for and reaching for in the world are suddenly people I'm running from. You know, I recently did a piece on Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill, which turned 25 years old this year. And one of the interesting uh, clips of an interview I heard her say was, okay, so, so she was young. She and Glenn Ballard did this album pretty much alone. They never, they got turned down by countless labels. And so they never saw what was coming for them. And she talked about this tidal wave of success and that she started reaching out to other female artists who either shunned her or criticized her publicly to later apologize to her privately. She was 22 years old. I mean, she was really young at the time. I wondered if you had interactions with other female artists that, you know, are that stand out to you today. You know, I, uh, I came out of the box writing very feminist songs, you know, and, you know, some of the songs involved you know, relationships with other females. So I was immediately cast as dyke, 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 dyke. Although in my mind, yeah, queer, sure, I'm queer. It's so much better than straight. <laughs> Who wants to be straight? <laughs> curvy, I'm curvy, I'm swervy, you know. And I'm free and I'm writing from my life. And, but so the, the first box, you know, like I, I talked about in my, you know, remembrances, it's like I was in the women's music section of music stores. Remember those days, you know? Oh, yeah. Which is just oddly, they have a separate little, they had a separate little box in the backs, back of the <laughs> store for music made by lesbians because that right. obviously only pertains to other lesbians. So we'll send them to the back and show them their <laughs> box, you know? So there I yeah. am in the box with the other lesbian music makers and you would think okay well there's my first community there's my first musical you know ghetto and that I they would welcome me and put their arms around me and tap my head and show me how you do that you know but I it wasn't always so you know mm -hmm. and you talk about a really disempowered marginalized community um and you'd think it would be like, ooh, young blood, yes, come, come, my child, you know. Make us stronger, make us live longer, make our voice louder. Um, but, you know, I was apparently a little bit threatening in my difference, in my newness, in my, you know, not all. Some were very maternal and, and welcoming. But not all. Same thing with the sort of folk community at large, you know, as I started to get hired at these folk festivals and, and started getting work on the folk circuit. And, you know, there's a lot of folk music community. You'd think it'd be like, whoa, an acoustic, a, a real folk singer, super political, mm -hmm. plays that acoustic guitar, doesn't have a band in sight, you know, one of us, you know, <laughs> but, eh, you know, 
oh, look at she has a shaved head and army boots and pierces an earring in her nose, <laughs> <You know? laughs> as they used to say, or whatever it was that you know. So yeah. there, yeah, it's it's not always easy, you know, to be welcomed into the world when you're shaking things up, you know. So yeah, there was a lot of, and certainly, you know, women just, I mean, you could just say that about women in general, that we are a marginalized group. I mean, certainly even more so when I was coming up and, you know, the jealousy and the, you know, the competition then for the the one slot of best chick guitar player mm -hmm. or best yep. chick song or, you know, is, mm -hmm. can become fierce amongst women because men create this, well, that's a, a patriarchy <laughs> creates mm -hmm. this situation. Yeah. I mean, your tenacity all this time has really been lovely to watch. Now that there's a big fat career to look back on, to imagine you launching that career of yours now, wow, that would be tough. Maybe not as tough. I don't know. It's like there are moments when I think, you know, that women have come so far, and then I look out there and I'm like, mm, not so much. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah, I know, exactly. And I'm sure those assessments are very accurate in those different moments. It's like, look how far we've... Oh, geez. <laughs> no, let's not get ahead yeah, of ourselves. Yeah, maybe you not. Know? It's like, okay. I got to say, um, Anne, I'm really glad that now that you've told me that story about Alanis Morissette, that I wasn't one to get a call from her. I guess that means that I did the right thing and didn't take my end of that same dynamic and frustration out on her. From my vantage point of that moment in time, she comes out with the Jagged Little Pill record and I spent the next five years of my life being compared to her, you know? Really? In the media. Oh, dude, I can't even tell you. And being asked right in my face about, is she an influence on me? Now, of course, I have a pile of records behind me and you know, I happen to know she came to my shows in Toronto and she went into the number one slot for her, you know, stint in the patriarchal structure. And I became subordinate to it. And I had to, I'm glad, you know, and I'm still, whatever, I got another gig to get to, you know, so whatever you want to say, say it and um, I'll do my thing over here. <laughs> I had always thought that you deserve so much more attention and that had people known about you, uh, they would have resonated with what you were saying. But it's interesting who gets the biggest megaphone and why during music history. And that's always something that's fascinated me. It's like, why did the light get shined on this artist and not this artist, you know? Uh, and, and you always, in my opinion, of course, and, and, I, and this is an opinion that I'm sure is shared, deserved a much bigger spotlight but the problem was is they didn't know what to do with you I think like what do we do with her she doesn't want to be signed to a major label she's going to do everything herself she's got her own label she plays and she's got you know these nails with electrical tape strapped to her and she shaves her head and she does all these things what are we going to do with her and I think they got confused or scared or whatever yeah and besides which she scares us <laughs> She just, yeah, she, all them dudes she, writing all, all making that 
that history. It's like, <laughs> you know, remember Sinead O'Connor, you know, when she found out they were going to turn her into a Barbie doll, she shaved her head and said, okay, I don't think so. I'm going to talk about the head shaving thing for a second. Your latest video, I'm jumping around here, but you have shaved your head and you make it look good. You make it look like a good idea. When I watched the video for your new song that I want to talk about, Do or Die, um, you shave your head in the video. And I'm like, she's really doing that right there. She is shaving her head. And when you got ready to leave your house, it looked like you were going to prepare for a fight. There was such a determination in your body language and in your face. Talk about writing this song, which is the importance of voting in our and our power in that vote. And if you think your vote doesn't matter, then you're not paying attention. Yeah, everything they do, they do to keep you from their invention. But we can do that if we try. Yeah, if we do that, like it's do or die, we can do that. Did you have this song already, or was this basically born out of this is where we are and I'm going to say something about it. Yeah, no, it's born out of this this moment, this political moment. I mean, I I wrote it in February when I was on the last tour of my known life <laughs> at this point. <laughs> um, and I just wanted, uh, you know, it was kind of a poem, you know, it was just kind of some words in my journal that I needed I needed something to speak to the moment when I was on stage every night and and sort of a rallying cry, you know, like we already, you know, back in February, I'm like, dudes, we got to get engaged. I don't care if you don't agree with the minutia of this or that or each other. We have to get together. We have to vote. We have to use this power that we've been given, you know, to forego it is, is spitting on the graves of every person who fought for it. When we went to make the video, I've had, as you know, every single hairdo known to human <laughs> along the way, you know, just trying on every identity, never losing my, I don't know, my, my curious, who am I? I don't know, maybe today I'm this person kind of <laughs> quest. Um, but the shave thing, I did that when I was 18 and I rocked that for a while and it was startling to people, you know, like at the time there oh, was, yeah. there was Sinead, people didn't know what to make of it. Um, unless you were a Sinead fan as I was and like, you know, I was sort of part of a movement that built a context for that kind of you know what, screw the pretty thing, um, community of young women. But I haven't done it since then, of all the sort of places and looks that I've been through. And then the idea came that because it feels, and I hope that this feeling comes true, you know, that there is something of the counterculture, of the social movement that I was sort of on the ground floor of, you know, 1990, you know, this sort of young people really starting to talk about capitalism, really starting to talk, really, you know, beginning to give voice to these 
these social movements that have been ongoing for a long time, you know, the feminist movement that, you know, talking about white supremacy. I remember when it was just me and, you know, 20 other radical punks and Black Panthers and the, all these social movements that were talking about things like white supremacy and capitalism and patriarchy and all these words that nobody in the dominant society ever said. You know, when you were cast as an extremist, maybe a threat. But now it's like we've come, we're coming to a critical mass. You know, you hear these words spoken on the TV. You know, you hear yeah. these words spoken in media. You hear these words spoken in households all over America. So it's like the youth movement that was multifaceted, rainbow colored, coming from so many communities that I was a tiny part of is not tiny anymore. The whole thing is hopefully hitting its stride and this awareness is coming to fruition. It was like a, just an instinctual thing. Like, I think I should shave my head again because I just wanna reconnect with, I'm not tired, I'm not giving up, I'm not done and I'm still in it with you guys and let's go, you know? So, but it was funny when it came time and then, so for the video, we're like, okay, I'll just, you know, I had already been cutting my hair every, pretty much every day since the pandemic shut, shut in, <laughs> started. <laughs> I just lop a little more off every day. So it got to the point where I should just shave it. You know, that's how the videos start these people with the cameras are in my bedroom and I'm, I'm walking into the bathroom and I, I start cutting it and I cut it real short. And then I was like, maybe this is good enough. <laughs> I went still right up to the last moment. I was like, oh, this is cool, right? This is kind of serious. Um, and then I look around and they're like, you're backing out now. You know, they're giving me these looks of, it was like, oh, wow. And that's the way I did it the first time too in my apartment in the East Village. In 1990, I did it with a Bic razor, and it was scary looking. I mean, it was zero to 60 of, I am not your pretty girl. Do you get it now? There's got to be some sort of liberation to doing it. It's so liberating. I mean, to have, like, just when you're over it, like, as a, as a young woman, you know, I had been playing in bars my teenage years, so you can imagine what the dynamic was. The world, uh, i.e., patriarchy, you know, so I was over it. And to go from people looking afraid and, and, and walking, giving me a wide berth from the come ons, it was like, yeah, that's right, that's right. <laughs> You're scared of me now, right? That's right. It was, it was empowering and liberating. And, and uh, yeah, you know, so I'm, I don't know, there was just something about going, but of course now I look in the mirror, I wake up in the morning and I, my life flashes before my eyes. Here's part two and the conclusion of my conversation with Anita Franco, in which she responds to my observation that although she is a folk singer and activist, she has also written some beautiful love songs. Oh, it's such a it's such a gift to me to have a conversation with somebody who does not see me as one dimensional, who's not talking to the caricature of Ani DeFranco, who's 
who was really there and really listening and, and noticed all these things, like the love songs, like the guitar player, or like the, what, the even just calling me multidimensional. It's, that's not what people usually see, you know, or the, or the portrait that's painted. So I appreciate your acknowledgement. And yeah, love, I mean, to me, they're kind of all love songs. You know, they come, they come, you know, the, the reason I can write so passionately about my society is because I'm in love. I'm in love with people. I'm in love with this country. I'm in love with, and it's so tragic, you know, when love is not given resonance, when love is thwarted and suppressed and, and oppressed and, and, and stagnates and, and turns on itself. And, you know, it doesn't matter if it's between two people or between two million people, it's tragic. So yeah, for me, it's like, all of those passions are, are just one and the same. And the struggles, you know, I've always noticed that the struggles I, I undergo in my personal relationships are so, they resonate so deeply with the macro struggles, you know, the way that the society is struggling with itself, you know, it just all mushes in my brain. So I couldn't imagine writing only one or the other you know, because they all come from the same place. Well, we're going to talk about um, uh, the most special love of all, and that is the love of your children, who change you in many, many ways. I listened to a performance that you did with Peta, your daughter. Who says it's better to be dry? The mighty oak trees are so happy right now. They could cry. So you just gotta take your lemons, make your lemonade, have your rainy parade. It's completely renewed and elevated to be able to sing with your kid. It's such a joy. So at one point, was your music unacceptable to her because it took attention away from her? Dude, yeah. That was also the glorious sort of part of her joining in was that my music was no longer the enemy um, because yes, right off, right off the bat, both my kids, the guitar is the enemy, you know, is if mommy gets near that thing, she gets that far away look and she's no longer watching everything I do, you know, <laughs> and it's bad. <laughs> that is obviously bad. And so kill the guitar. Um, and then, of course, there is the very, very real, it takes me away. It literally takes me away for weeks at a time from being their mom. And I work on the road and I leave a lot. It's a hard relationship that they've had with my music slash job from the beginning. So when PETA, you know, PETA joined me for the first three and a half years that she was alive on the road. She was tour baby, learned how to walk on a rolling tour bus. Very sure-footed, <laughs> this kid, <laughs> you know. I'll bet. And um, then when she sort of came back around as a, you know, a singer herself and would come and visit me on tour and started coming up on stage, it was just like, oh, it was so, you know, it was such a blessing for me to 
be united through it instead of having it be a point of tension and, and you know, jealousy almost. Well, during the pandemic, this must be the, is this the most extended period of time that you've all been together in such a concentrated way? By far. In fact, I hate to say this out loud, but I, I fear that I caused all of this. <laughs> I have wanted so badly for so long to have permission to stay home with them, you know, and mm -hmm. now I, and you know, there's so many reasons why I couldn't give myself that permission, you know, if I'm the, you know, the breadwinner of the family for starters, and I'm, me being out on tour pays a whole lot of other people's salaries and lives, and right. you know, it's, it's a, mm -hmm. you know, it's not a simple decision even that I could just, my family could take that burden alone. It, it would be a burden shared by many. It's, you know, because uh, as this pandemic plays out, you know, we, we, this, we discover things like my management people, for instance, they don't work any less hard. But I'll tell you, they're, they got a commission of a whole lot of nothing right now. You know, we right. have a whole lot of nothing coming in, you know. So who could have given themselves you know, that license, but I was, it was given to me with free of guilt, uh, you know, that it was even my choice. So, mm -hmm. um, it's really, I am just reveling in the blessings that it's brought me to be home. I want to talk to you about something people probably don't ask you much about, which is mixing your own albums. You are, uh, by and large, the producer on all your albums, and you've brought in people like Joe Henry from time to time to co-produce with you. But I always noticed that until the last album, you did all the mixing. And so I think people might not know that you've written the songs, then you record the songs, sometimes multiple instruments. Then after that's done, the job of mixing is a whole nother job that starts. But on this last album... You relinquished that to someone else, to Chad Blake. And I wondered why you decided to do that finally after all these years. And what was that experience like to take your baby and turn it over to somebody else? Yeah, it's radical. Holy cow. <laughs> and, you know, just changing it up. 22 records later, changing it up, you know, trying new things. Like letting a professional mixer mix my record. Wow. Wow. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of, like you say, it's a lot of, um, whatever, delegating, relinquishing. Um, I wasn't even in the room, you know, Chad lives in Wales, you know? Um, <laughs> so I just send him, you know, bed tracks. I send him the, the multis it's raw, raw with no, he doesn't want to know a thing about how I conceived of it, you know, where I panned wow. things, how I EQ'd things, what was loud, what was quiet. And it's, it's wild because sometimes something that I had sort of quiet as a very background supportive element, he cranks. And then it's like, well, dude, if I'd known it was going to be cranked, I'd have uh, <laughs> wiped the poop off of it, you know, like what? No, what the... So for many reasons, I don't think this would have been possible for me to do that uh, 20 records ago or 15 or maybe even 10. You know, I think what I produced are very, 
singular records. But with this, you know, in this moment, it's amazing. It's truly amazing because it really makes me realize, puts me in touch with, you know, by the time I get to the mixing phase of one of my records, I'm so not objective. You know, I feel like I'm old enough and ready enough that I was, you know, often he sends the music back a song, song by song. He does it and I go, wow, not what I would have done, but okay, great. And oftentimes when I give it that 24-hour window, I come all the way back around to, oh my God, it's brilliant. You have written about the human condition, the social condition, your personal experiences for your whole life. Has there ever been anything that was off limits for you to write about that you just said, you know what, I'm not going to go there? A lot of my songs along the way, and certainly the anthems and the ones that have been embraced heartedly, or, but like you say, people who are really there with me, they're, they're getting the love songs, they're getting the vulnerability song, they're getting all of the stuff and tapping in in their own way. But there's, so it's not just all rah, 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 you know, self-empowerment. Um, it's not the only thing that I'm writing. But often that energy, that movement towards towards becoming myself is driving a song. So even when it's exploring struggles and crisis or I'm showing my vulnerabilities or my failings or the direction is towards a stronger self, towards a better self, towards a, a more whole, more connected life. Showing myself as wrong or weak or spent or scared is not territory I have lived in a lot in my songwriting, so I feel like I poked into there a little bit on this new record, and that feels a little extra for me. 